Alright, we're going to deviate from our, our series on the glory of the Lord. This morning we want to look at a passage of Scripture which I hope will be encouraging to all of us. Um, we're going to look at James 1, 19-25. The sermon is titled this morning, A Recipe for Blessing. And those of you who cook all know that when you have a recipe, you have to put the ingredients, the right ingredients in the right order and follow the directions or the end result doesn't come out the way it's expected to. Our Christian life is very similar in that way. Um, and we're going to look at that. So follow along with me as I read. We're going to look at James, 19, James 1, 19 through 25. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father God in heaven, as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning, as we consider the overtones of discernment that we as Christians need to have going, navigating our way through life, navigating through our life story, as it were. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom, give us the discernment, give us the understanding that we need as we run into life's issues, we run into life's problems, that we do things the way the Word of God prescribes them. So as we look at this this morning, I pray that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. Lord, fill me with your words. Take away my own thoughts, take away my own preconceived notions, Lord, and, and allow your Holy Spirit to speak through me that your, the Word of God will be delivered truthfully and without error. In Christ's name, amen. So, this morning I want to begin with a thought. An end in mind. Now, we all have an end in mind, and we all know what that end. The end is Christ's return. But... Let's take the summer of 2019. It's just begun. And when we get to Labor Day, how would you like to see that summer have ended? Take, for a, take, take a mental snapshot, if you will, of Labor Day. Labor Day is the official end of summer. It's when everything comes to a close and then we start preparing for fall and winter and all the things that that, that entail. But... When you picture Labor Day, what picture comes to your mind? How do you see the 85 days between now and Labor Day playing out? What would you like to see happen during that period of time? What will your GPA be? GPA being your goals, your plans, and the administration of your goals and plans. 
Which verses would you like to memorize? Who are the folks that you would like to see come to the Lord that, that really need the gospel? I think most of us would desire for this Labor Day for us, for us to be able to sit back on Labor Day and look back at the blessings that those 85 days held, seeing the loved ones come to Christ, having been able to memorize and, and store away Scripture, being able to respond correctly to, to situations and circumstances that come up in our lives that inevitably we need discernment. Today's text is going to lead us to use discernment and is going to bring us to a point of decision. question that I'd like to ask is, are blessings of God merely things that happen to us? Are we passive recipients of the blessings of God? Or are the choices that we make a direct, do, is the blessings that we see come from God a direct result of the choices that we make as believers? Now, I asked this question at home this morning, and frankly, I believe that both happen. Yes, I do believe that we are, in some way, a passive recipient of God's blessing. Just look around. Look at the beauty that we behold every day. We don't have to do anything to see that. All we have to do is open our, get up out of bed and open our eyes and look around. We go to the beach. We can watch the sunset. and We can see the beautiful picture that God paints in the sky for us when the sun sets over Lake Michigan. And I believe that is a passive recipient of God's blessing. We draw air into our lungs and our heart beats and our blood flows through our veins spontaneously. We don't do anything to make that happen. That just happens. That's because God's hand sustains us. And that is a passive blessing that we see from the Lord. However, there are things that we can do and there are choices that we can make where we can remove God's hand of blessing from our lives or God will bless us accordingly to the things that we do right. So if we, as we think about the next days coming up, we have 85 days, give or take. We have wedding preparations. That's happening in our house right now. We got a wedding in what? Three weeks? From yesterday. Three weeks from yesterday. We have wedding. And we're about to get real busy with wedding preparations. Vacation plans are being made. Babies are on the way. And unfortunately, there are marriages that are falling apart. There are businesses that are going to go through trouble. And unfortunately, death will rock us. It's a, natural, it's a natural course of life. Sooner or later, we will taste this thing of death, physical death, whether it be us or a loved one. In all these things, we, however, have a very sure foundation in the Word of God. And we can respond to God's recipe for blessing and show others how to taste and see that the Lord is good by how we respond to the things that we have going on in our lives. We go back, we can look at wedding preparations. Wedding preparations can be an incredibly stressful time. And there have been, the term has been coined bridezillas, and where the bride gets just unreasonable and crazy and wants things her way, and the preparations leading up to wedding can be incredibly stressful. Thankfully, we don't have that. And I say that because I believe that there is the tempering of the Holy Spirit in 
all of our lives and in her life to keep things in check, to keep things in perspective. We're all planning vacations. Now, we also know that vacation time can be, vacation time is supposed to be relaxing, it's supposed to oh, get away, kick your feet up and relax. But the time, the, the preparations that it takes us to get the vacation, that can be stressful. Got to do this, got to do that, got to run here, got to get this car fixed, got to get that fixed, I got to get this. And, you know, it's, and you're going, oh, this is supposed to be restful. So how do we respond to those times? And then we have babies coming. And while a baby is a beautiful thing and it's joyous and we all love to see the little one, mama's got to carry that little one in her stomach for nine months. And the uncomfortableness that comes with carrying a little one. I've watched my wife carry seven little ones. And usually between months of seven and nine, the uncomfortableness gets greater and greater and greater. And yes, I see you looking and counting and there's six. We have one in heaven. But she did have to carry that one. And we're going to address that a little bit later too. And then we see people whose marriages are failing. Every one of us knows someone whose marriage is failing or has failed. And that can be stressful. And how we respond to them and how we help them and how we deal with them. God's Word's given us a sure foundation on how to do that. And, ulti- and, and businesses will fail. I know from past experience. I've had trouble in business in the past. Thankfully, not now. But how you respond to those hard times when business isn't going the way you want it to is laid out for us in Scripture. How do we respond to the hard times? And obviously, death. How do we respond when someone dies? Do we have hope? Do we mourn their loss and rejoice because they've gone on to heaven? What if a loved one dies who doesn't know the Lord? That's hard. Had that happen? We don't know what went on in that person's mind in their, in their last fleeting breaths, whether they, in their, in their last moments, accepted Christ or rejected Him to their last breath. We don't know. But we also know that God is righteous and we have to rest in that. So we're going to test our responses. The book of James describes various trials in which we learn to respond with joy. Yes, like I said, and we've kind of gone through them, we'll face tests. But we're, also, but we're called also upon for our faith to be tested. And everyone in this room has had situations where your faith has been tested. And we can go back in James, if we flip back just a couple couple verses to verses 13 through 18, we see where our responses to temptation of sin were tempted. And it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And when sin and sin, when it is, infinite, is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren, every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So 
in that passage, there is a way, God, there's a prescribed way to deal with temptation. In our particular passage we're going to look at today, we're going to learn how to test our responses to the teachings of Scripture. Your response to wickedness tells you a lot about your spiritual life. And your response to God's Word tells you even more about your spirit, where you are spiritually. Think about that for a minute. We see wickedness all around us. How do we respond to it? When we see wickedness happening, and I'm going to bring up the whole thing of abortion again, because that, I believe, is probably the most wicked thing that is happening in our country at this moment. How do we respond to that? What is our, do we have apathy? Do we feel bad? Do we, you know, like, oh, you know, I don't, you know, I'm, it's wrong, but, you know, there's a lot of people out there who call themselves Christians who will hem and haul over this. They're apathetic. They're, well, you know, well, there's certain circumstances. Uh, no, no, it's wickedness. How do we respond to wickedness? And when we see, and when we open God's Word and God's Word pinpoints something in our lives that we need change on, how do we respond to God's Word? Do we respond with, not now? Do we respond with, do we brush it off as, ah, it's not really talking about me? Or do we rationalize away what, what God's Word is putting on our life? Or do we respond to it? Do we, do we do like David when David was confronted with his sin, when Nathan the prophet went to him and said, Thou art the man. Essentially, that's what God's Word does to us when we go in God's Word and He pinpoints something in our life. God is essentially saying, Thou art the man. You sinned. You need to get right. How do we deal with that? How do we respond to God's Word? Now, sin, sin's deceptive way and self-deceptive sway are ever-present dangers. And this is obvious. This is obvious from James 1.16, and we just read that, it says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. And James 1.22, passage that we just read, said, But if we, but be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The effect of this deception is evident in what man forgets. In verse 24, when it says, He beholdeth himself, and go the way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. If we hear God's Word, God's Word comes into us. We consider it for a moment and then walk away and forget. Walk away and it has no bearing. It has no effect. We're deceiving ourselves. We're essentially playing the fool's game with our own life. So when you think about what you want the next 85 days to be like, the rest of summer, and now I'm using summer as kind of like a uh, visual timeline. Realistically, we can say for the length of days that God has left to give us breath. When we get to the end of our days, when we get to the very end and God calls us to be with Him, what do we want our life story to look like? Do we want it to be something that we look back and Jesus says to us, well done, a good and faithful servant? Or are we going to hang our head in shame because we fell short of what God wanted for us? Think of this illustration for a moment. 
In James 1, 14 and 15, it says, But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust is conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Every person is tempted to do evil. But God's word shines a bright spotlight on the fog of our sin and our frailty. We'll look at that word lust just for a minute. When you hear that word lust, what's the first thing that pops in your mind? What's the first thing you think of? You can tell me out loud. What's the first thing you think of when you hear someone say the word lust? Overwhelming desire. The response was a little different in my house. Um, Probably because I have more guys than... But when we think of lust, the first thing that rings in my mind is sexual, sexual sin. But Mike hit it right on. Lust is a desire for something that we cannot have or that's forbidden. Adam and Eve lusted for something that they could not have. Jesus said, you can't have the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then Satan came along and tempted them. And they saw that maybe this was a good thing and they sinned. They partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I hear to tell you, I, I kind of believe that when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, Satan painted a really different picture of what, that, what their knowledge was going to look like. I'm sure Satan probably painted a picture that, and he said, you will be like gods. You will be like God. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, they had a knowledge of good and evil, all right, an experiential knowledge of evil. They didn't plan on that. That's not what their thought process was. And that's what lust does. Lust gives us a desire for something that we shouldn't have, and then when we fulfill it, it brings forth death. And that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. They, all of a sudden, their perfect little world was blown apart because they were, Satan misrepresented what they thought they were getting. Every man is drawn away, is drawn away by his personal and wicked desires. Every one of us has, our personal desires are different. I may struggle with a personal desire that you don't. You probably struggle with a personal desire that I don't. Something that you think you want or think you need that God says, no, you can't have. He is enticed or seduced by these desires. These evil desires conceive sin in him or her. And when sin comes forth, it brings forth death. Now, you may know the emotional pain of bringing forth a stillborn child. And I know that the women in this room and the men who are husbands and relatives, we all understand that. It's a trying situation that grieves everyone, parents, grandparents, siblings, doctors, and nurses. Everyone agonizes over a stillborn. But don't miss the point that James is making here. Lust and sin naturally produce stillborn fruit every time. If you want a stillborn summer, wasting your time and talents, that's where lust will lead you. When Labor Day comes and you look back at the last 85 days, do you want to say, what a wasted summer? Or when we stand on the golden shores, we're getting ready to cross into Beulah land, do we want to look back and say, what a wasted life? 
I don't think we do. No one wants to hear that. But this is where lust will lead. It leads to a delivery room of darkness. But this passage includes another illustration of conception and birth that should and will, as believers, warm our hearts. Look at James 1, 17 and 18. It says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be the kind of firstfruits of his creatures. First of all, we need to understand that God never tempts us with evil. He is the Father of light, and he is the author of every good and perfect gift. The God who is the author of everything good and perfect cannot be the author of something that trips us up to sin. What he does conceive and bring forth in us and for us, in verse 18 tells us that by his own will, he conceived and birthed us with the word of truth. He did so in order that believers would be the earliest fruit, the earliest indication of the coming new creation. This wonderful new birth happens happened through the glorious work of Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, "Ye must be born again. Each one of us was physically born as a child of wrath. Every one of us was born into sin. None of us was born a believer. But Jesus came to take God's wrath upon himself, and that's the wrath that you and I deserved. He drank the cup of God's wrath while he was on the cross. Think about that just for a minute. He drank the cup of God's wrath. God being all-holy, almighty, perfect, righteous judge. Can you imagine the wrath that would be poured out on someone who was unholy. That wrath was poured out on his own son on our behalf so that we didn't have to bear that because God knew that we never could bear that. He drank the cup of God's wrath while he was on the cross. He died, was buried, and rose again to show that he had dealt the death blow to the old monster death. This is why John 12.1 explains to us that but as many received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. James 1.18 is a delivery room filled with light from the Father of lights. This is why you can respond to his recipe for blessing. So, you say how? How do we apply the right responses? Verses 19 through 27 warn us about the wrong responses and guide us to the right choices. And you can see that the illustration, if you can see the illustration above clearly illustrates, James gives us practical advice. Plan to act instead of reacting. And listen carefully to verse 19. It says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Speaking to us as Christians and beloved brethren, James warns us about our responses. And if you think about this, under pressure, 
It's so easy to speak first in anger and later think in humility. Every one of us has been in a situation where we've either been confronting, confronted by someone, or a situation that happens that makes our blood boil, that really wants to tip us over the edge. And Satan is right there just at your back pushing. But what does the Word of God say? And there, if you think about that, we can go back to some of our previous sermons. There's a crossroad. There's a crossroad when, when we're under pressure, when we're in a position where Satan's at our back pushing us to do something that we know not to do. The crossroad is, beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. We have an admonition from God, from God Almighty, telling us what to do. He counsels us to be quick to hear. He counsels us to, to, to think about what we're going to say and be slow to speak. Process your words before you say them. Allow the Holy Spirit to check you up and give you the words to say. If any words to say. Sometimes no words is better than saying something. And be very slow to get angry. Now, why are you slow to angry? Because quick anger is wrong anger. If we, the Bible doesn't say not to get angry. I had a pastor tell me this once. We were talking about something. He says, you need to understand something. The Bible doesn't say don't get angry. The Bible says don't sin when you're angry. It says be angry and sin not. There are certain things that we can be. We can be angry at the wickedness of, of abortion. We can be angry at murder. We can be angry when someone does something that is an affront to God. When someone violates God's name, we're allowed to be angry at that. We're not allowed to be angry at the person. We're not allowed to sin when we get angry. That's why he says, be slow to anger. Sinful human anger does not produce the right responses. That honors God. So, plan to carry through on the processes that please God. This passage concludes with a recipe for blessing that we are seeking. But we need to understand what to include and what, and what to exclude from our recipe. And you think about that for a minute, just in a very basic, in a very, if you're making chocolate chip cookies, the last thing you want to put in chocolate chip cookies is hot sauce. Well, some of us would probably put hot sauce in chocolate chip cookies, but that's, would probably not make a very good chocolate chip cookie. You've got to stick to the recipe. You've got to put into the recipe what's supposed to be in it and leave out what's not supposed to be in it in order to produce the perfect cookie. And you're supposed to cook it the right way and for the right length of time. There's a recipe. There's a plan. God has a plan for our lives in order for us, for Him to bless us. And there's three crucial life-changing steps in the process. Verses 21 22 say, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. These verses make it extremely clear to us that believers are not mere passive recipient, participants. We are to actively get rid of the filthiness and the overflow of wickedness in our own lives. This involves the kind of choices brought in verses such as Romans 13:14b and says make not provision for the for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof.
when God pinpoints something in our life, when God says this is something that needs to go, it's a sin. We are to actively purge that from our life. We are to do everything in our power to make sure that that sin doesn't return. One of the things that my wife and I were talking about is the Word of God tells us it's better to vow a vow. It's better to... How's that go? It's better to not vow a vow than to vow a vow and break it. So imagine making a vow to God that you will not do something and then breaking that vow. Purge filthiness and wickedness from your life. Make it go away. So there's a great question to test our responses to the verses. What have you put out of your life recently? What have you stopped doing or watching or listening to to cause you to stumble spiritually? What is tripping you up and is leading you toward a stillborn summer? What needs to be jettisoned right out of your life? The first crucial life-changing step is to stop doing sinful things that waste our time and talents. I want to use this look at the back of that word jettisoned. Anybody know what ever anybody ever heard that, know what that word and what it refers to? Fighter jets often have external fuel tanks and they fill them and they're pretty heavy. But in a situation where um two fighter jets come up against one another and they actually have to dogfight in the air and they need agility. They will jettison those tanks. They'll make those tanks go away so that plane is more nimble and able to handle the way it's supposed to handle. Gets rid of the dead weight. Now, of course, it also reduces its fuel supply. But the fact of the matter is they jettison those tanks so that they can be more agile, so that they can perform the way they're supposed to perform without the extra weight hanging on the bottom of the plane. As Christians... When we have a sin that's weighing us down, we have a sin that's keeping us from being an agile believer, being able to navigate through life, we are to jettison those things right out of our life. Make them go away. Detach them from us and let them fall away into the ocean. They're not weighing us down anymore. We had one pastor who used to say this, and he used to say it real close to the mic, and he would just say, Stop sinning. Pretty much the end of the discussion. Stop sinning. Don't do it. The second step is crucial. To receive the implanted word of God. This word enables you, enables, is able to save your soul. And James pictures our soul as like a soil that is eroding. And we all know that if you take away vegetation from a patch of ground, it won't be long before the rain starts to erode that bare soil away. If you pull some grass up on a hill, the rainwater will not run through the grass, but it will run through where there's no grass, and then it will erode that soil right away. But if the grass is there, it won't erode it nearly as quickly. It takes a lot more rain and a lot more water flow for that to happen. But how do we do this for our souls? And James answers us. He says, receive the implanted word of God. Plant the scriptures so deep in your soul that they cannot, it cannot be eroded away. 
this second crucial life-changing step. Now these three steps are similar to the three steps laid out in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. And I'm going to turn back there real quick. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. And they read, that ye put off concerning the, old, the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and renew in the spirit of your mind that ye may put on the new man after which God is created in the righteousness and true holiness. Pastor friend of mine used to use this three, used to say this. He said, put off, renew, put on. Put off the old man, renew your spirit and your mind, and put on the new man. Very much the same of what James is talking about. Each of us must make choices to lay aside sin. Each of us must make the choice to learn to think differently using God's Word to transform our thinking. The third, the third, is cru- the third crucial life-changing step is to start doing something. What is that? But be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. The next right step is to start putting Scriptures into practice. If you fail to do this for whatever reason, you're deceiving yourself. The third step helps us to complete the process by A, stop doing sinful things, B, learn to think differently using the Word of God, and, and three, or C, to start putting the Scriptures into practice. None of us wants to be deceived. When we get to the end of our life, or the proverbial Labor Day, none of us wants to get to there and and grieve over a stillborn summer of producing dead fruit. Yet the danger, according to verse 22, is that we will deceive ourselves. It's one thing to play a prank on someone else, but what if you are pranking yourself? What if, by not taking heed to the Word of God, by only hearing it, by only just considering it for a moment, and then not do anything about it, what if we're deceiving our own selves? What if we are playing the ultimate April Fool's Day joke on us without even realizing it? Wouldn't you want to be alerted to the fact that you are in a fantasy world of your own making? And realistically, really, that is a fantasy world. To be able to say, I hear God's Word and that's good enough for me. I'm hearing it. I can go sit and I can hear God's Word being preached and I can read God's Word, but if I don't, eh, I don't need to do it, you know. I'm covered. Grace. God's grace. God is love, so I'm okay. No. God gave us a very clear, he said, to hear the word and then be a doer of the word. The next two illustrations will help you to sort this out a little bit, if you haven't already. And it comes down to how you respond to the word. There's, there's two men. Two men who we might call Mr. 24 and Mr. 25. And these two men are going to help us help you see how your responses are to God's Word, which carries through on the process that pleases God. Verse 23 through 25 say, For if any be a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself 
and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he not being a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If you listen to the word without putting it into practice, you are deceiving yourselves. James says that very clearly. James illustrates this process with a man looking into a mirror. Now watch how the different men respond and then ask, which one am I? Mr. 24 does three things. He beholds himself, he goes his way, and he forgets what manner of man he was. He forgets what he is like. Mr. 24 is to be commended for reading God's word in a reflective manner. He beholds himself. The difficulty is that he goes his way, goes on with his day in his regular way, and he forgets something very important. He forgets what manner of man he really is. He doesn't allow the word of God and the mirror of God's light to shine in his life and reflect him. All he does is read it and consider it and then walk away. It's like someone telling you, I mean, if someone gives you advice, it's kind of a weak, kind of a weak analogy, but... You can go to somebody and ask them for advice, and they'll give you advice, and then you walk away and you completely forget what they said. You just don't bother taking their advice. And it may have been really good advice. I've had that happen to me. You know, giving people advice, and they go away, and they do almost the completely opposite of the advice you gave them, and they fail. And you're going, ugh. I'm thinking in some ways God might do that. He's given us his plan. He's given us all the advice we need to get through a Christian life. He's given us everything we need to succeed as Christians. And we walk away and we forget and we do our own thing and we fail. And I'm betting God's in heaven going, what is wrong with these people? (laughs) The world system constantly challenges our identity. And we're created We were created by God in his image. Or are we little flecks of protoplasm from an unknown source with no real purpose? We know that's not true. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Or should our hearts be trusted completely to guide us? And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again. You don't follow your heart. You lead your heart with the word of God because your heart can be deceived and is desperately wicked. If we follow our own heart, we will fail. It will lead us to failure. Will we face the judgment seat at the end of life or just cease to exist? The real problem with with Mr. 24 is that he does not retain what he learned from the Word of God. He forgets the findings of the Word of God, which is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart, And forgetfully, he deceives himself. This is not the recipe for blessing. He has changed the recipe for God's blessing. Now, Mr. 25, now he has five characteristics. He does four things and receives God's blessing for doing so. One, he looks into the word, the perfect law of liberty. He continues continues to be in the word in a reflective manner. He is not a forgetful hearer of the word, and he puts the word of God into practice. He is blessed in his deed. Here is God's recipe for blessing. This is how to be blessed. Mr. 25 looks into the word of God as God's perfect law, which sets him free. Many 
false teachers will promise liberty, but will only lead you to bondage. The scriptures were designed to deliver you from bondage into glorious liberty. Rather than being casual with God's word like Mr. 24, Mr. 24 continues or abides in it. As a result, Mr. 24 is, a, is as a result, he is not a forgetful hearer as Mr. 24 is. Mr. 25 is not a forgetful hearer as Mr. 24 was. No, indeed, he escapes self-deception by putting the word of God into practice. And what is the result? He is blessed in his deed, just as you and I find in Psalm 1, which we read earlier. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. And in Joshua 1.8, God causes his way to prosper, and he gives him good success. Mr. 25's example makes it clear. We can respond to God's recipe for blessing and show others how to taste and see that the Lord is good. So, let's respond to the Lord's recipe. Let's look in the Word, abide in it, so that we remember it and put it into practice. We will be blessed in doing so. And then when we get to the end of our life, when we get to our labor day, as it were, we won't look back and look at a bunch of stillborn fruit. We'll look back at a vibrant life that was useful for the purpose of spreading the gospel. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much for, the, for your word. Thank you so much for the admonition we have in James to be hearers of the word, to be doers of the word, to, to examine our lives. Most of all, Lord, I think that we, I, I ask, Lord, that each and every one of us would examine our own hearts, that we would just put away the things that are tripping us up. We'd put away the things that cause us to sin, put away the things that entice us into sinfulness so that we can be attentive to the Word of God, so we can be attentive to the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, so we can do the things, so that we can taste and see that the Lord is good and that those around us see that. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for your name. In Christ's name, amen.